This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by educational grants from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. I'm Emma and this is the last episode of the series. We're looking at recent data on potential new therapies in development, including dual and triple agonists and once weekly insulins. We'll be joined later by Professor Anne Peters to discuss how these therapies might be used in the future. As usual, you can find links to faculty disclosures and all the references discussed today in the episode notes. Some highly anticipated results presented in June at the ADA scientific sessions were those from the SURPASS programme, which is a programme of phase three clinical trials looking at tazepatide, a dual GLP-1 GIP agonist in development for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Results have been presented from the SURPASS 1, 2, 3 and 5 trials, which tested tazepatide in various settings, including as monotherapy compared to placebo and as an add-on to metformin compared to semaglutide, insulin degladec and insulin glargine. The results have so far been very promising, with the primary and key secondary endpoints met in each of the trials. Notably, around half the participants in each trial achieved an HbA1c of less than 5.7%. There are other dual and even triple agonists at earlier stages of development, including cotagdutide, a dual GLP-1 glucagon agonist being investigated in people with type 2 diabetes and overweight or obesity, as well as a triple GIP GLP-1 glucagon agonist. More data was also recently presented on sotagliflozin, a dual inhibitor of both SGLT2 and SGLT1. The new data was from a pre-specified pooled analysis of the SCORED and SOLOIST trials, which studies sotagliflozin in patients with type 2 diabetes plus chronic kidney disease or acute heart failure respectively. The pooled data found sotagliflozin reduced the risk of cardiovascular outcomes, regardless of the range of ejection fraction, including for preserved ejection fraction. Importantly, this was the first large randomised data to show a significant benefit of a therapy on heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but there is no word yet on whether this drug will be available for use in the near future. So how might these potential new therapies fit into existing treatment plans, and what do the new data mean? Today we're speaking to Professor Anne Peters, who's a Professor of Clinical Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California in the USA. So firstly, if we look at tazepatide, which we recently saw data for uh, presented at ADA from the SURPASS programme of trials, um, assuming that at some point this gets approved, where do you think it might fit in future treatment plans? So I'm a clinician and I tend not to get that excited about treatments before I can use them. And I wasn't really all that interested in terzepatide until recently. And it's almost like it takes a lot of phase three trial data to convince me of safety, which is the first thing that I'm interested in with anything new, because there's all this hype around new things, but then I worry about safety and side effects. And having the surpassed trial data presented in its entirety and really looking at all the different trials and all the different benefits, I must say that even I, the skeptic that I can be, was impressed by Sir's appetite. It really causes 
um, much more A1C reduction and weight loss than I've ever seen. And when they uptitrated the dose more slowly as they did in the phase three trials, there were fewer GI side effects in the phase two trials, they'd gone up more quickly and they'd had a lot more side effects and dropouts. But I was actually impressed at how tolerated it was. In terms of long-term side effects, we still don't know. And the biggest unknown is whether or not there's cardiovascular benefit, and that has to come from cardiovascular outcomes trials. So in terms of using a GLP-1 receptor agonist, I'm still gonna use those agents uh, for a long time because I know risks benefits and I know cardiovascular benefits, but terzepatide really interested me. And I didn't in the beginning understand terzepatide. I didn't understand why combining a GLP-1 receptor agonist and GIP made such a difference. And I've listened now to enough lectures speculating on why this is beneficial, but I also realized that the experts like Dr. Daniel Drucker, who I really respect, don't know either, made me say, oh, the fact that I don't really understand this is something that's universal. But I really developed uh, interest in this compound, and I'm cautiously optimistic that it's going to make a big difference in how we treat people with type 2 diabetes. But again, we're not there quite yet, and we need the cardiovascular outcomes. So what you just said about the mechanism of action and the controversy around that brings me on to my next question, which is about your thoughts on that. I mean, it's very speculative, but what's your feeling? I know Dr. Drucker pointed out um, during the ADA symposium that GIP given alone in preclinical studies hasn't been shown to be very effective. So what are your thoughts on this? And do you think there's likely to be more of these types of coagulists developed in the future? Well, I actually think that whoever figured out to use these drugs together was pretty darn smart because GIP by itself, I was completely unimpressed by, but there's something that's happening when you combine the two, whether it's changing the GLP-1 receptor uh, sensitivity to, to GLP-1, it, it has to work together. And GIP is, is in some way enhancing that effect or creating its own effect, but it's not something that works separately. So I look at it as we know GLP-1 and what that does, and then you add in this coagonist and it makes it do it better. Whether it makes it do it differently is what's important because again, that has to do with safety and cardiovascular benefits. But I think we're gonna be understanding more and more of these gut hormones, how they work together. And in the gut, in, in a, in a normal gut, these hormones come out. I mean, that's the beauty of hormones. It's why I went into endocrinology. It's so fascinating, the puzzle of how, how all of this works. So I think that this is just the beginning of this co-agonist approach to managing not only diabetes, but also obesity. And I think we'll do more and more in this area, but whether we truly understand how all of this works together is just speculation at this point. So people who do research and look at this in animal models and eventually understand it in humans will tell us. So right now, I just want to know if I can use it safely with benefit, but I find it fascinating. I got, I was really fascinated by the ADA meetings in terms of this. It, it was really exciting to me. 
The pooled analysis of the SCORD and SOLOIST trials presented at ADA showed a protective effect of sotagliflozin for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which has been historically difficult to treat. So while sotagliflozin inhibits SGLT1 as well as SGLT2, do you think this might speak to a possible class effect in the case of SGLT2 inhibitors? Well, the SOLOIST trials were interesting and I liked obviously that they're, you know, positive and show the benefits. I don't know how much difference there's going to be with uh, SGLT1-2 agonist versus an SGLT, oh wait, I don't know how much benefit there is of having an SGLT1-2 inhibitor versus an SGLT2 inhibitor clinically. So they may have a similar effect um, but you can't tell that until you've actually combined um, or done studies where you compare the two. But in terms of the soloist trial and helping with, with um, HEF-PEF, I thought it was interesting and promising. I don't quite understand HEF-PEF. I'm not a cardiologist. I can understand HEF-REF. That seems to me to make sense. But I do see heart failure. I see HEF-PEF and HEF-REF often in my patients with diabetes, and I co-manage them with a cardiologist, but the notion of helping people with HEFPEF really obviously appeals to me, and if these agents do work, and if it becomes sort of a class effect that extends to the SGLT2 inhibitors, I think it's great, but we have a lot more um, in terms of the clinical trials that are ongoing, and a lot more data that we need to amass, but it's, it's something that's interesting. I don't know if sotagliflozin will be approved in the United States, but it is comforting, again, that as an extension of what we already know about at least SGLT2 inhibitors, that it is still part of the same trajectory, that these agents are very beneficial for patients, both with heart failure and renal insufficiency. So I think it's nice to see that there was that benefit. Um, and finally, if we talk a bit about once-weekly insulins, um, so there's now two once-weekly insulins that um, reported their phase two findings. I believe they're both entering into phase three now. So obviously it's still very early to say, but what kind of impact do you think this could have on future treatment if it um, makes it to approval? Well, once weekly insulin was something that I used to be very skeptical of. And again, as we're seeing the data come out, I'm somewhat less skeptical. And my skepticism has to do with the risk of hypoglycemia, because that's the big risk of using insulin. And in something that seems to me like a giant barge that I'm giving once a week and that I don't really have much ability to turn or change, I get worried. And my patients, like all humans, don't do the same thing every day of the week. So weekends may be more physically active. They may eat differently. Who knows what? And so it worries me a bit. And in particular, it worries me in seniors, people who are elderly, who may eat less, or people with food insecurity. There's all sorts of caveats. But I have been actually relatively impressed by the safety, and the phase three trials will tell us and I have a lot of patients who would give insulin once a week, who I think forget to give it every day, who don't like giving it every day. And it allows us to consider co-administration with a once weekly uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist. So I think that it may, in terms of adherence capacity, be a really good thing. So 
we're really going to need to look at the safety in the phase three trials, but I certainly know there's a patient demand for it and it might help. Great, thank you. And finally, I guess if you had to um, sum up um, in terms of these upcoming therapeutics, what's sort of coming potentially down the line in the future, um, what do you think the main things are going to be to look out for in terms of um, real life clinical practice, potential changes? So my first answer to that question is that we have lots of therapies currently that if we use them and if patients are willing to take them and adhere to them, we can really improve and change outcomes. But the newer therapies seem to me to be improvements on existing therapies or things like terzepatide, which is using uh, a coagonist approach or once weekly insulin, as we discussed, or some of the newer technologies, which have better algorithms, uh, are fancier, uh, easier for people to use. So I think what we're doing is taking what exists and making it better and easier for patients. So I think that that's a really important um, step. There are also some interesting, um, very early studies that look at how we can perhaps treat type 1 diabetes by giving um, new beta cells in one way or another. And, you know, everybody wants a cure for all of these things for diabetes. But I think that what we know increasingly, obviously, what we've known for a long time is how much lifestyle plays a role. But then there's been more of a focus on the treatment of obesity and how we can use pharmacologic agents to do that. And I think that all of that rolls in together to trying to shift the situation to one where people are healthier and that we have agents that are safe and effective to help people do that. And then we didn't talk about prediabetes, but there may be a role for some of these agents like SGLT2 inhibitors to help prevent um, prediabetes from becoming diabetes. And I'd love to prevent people from becoming overweight and obese. So I think that starting even earlier with some of these treatments may prove even um, more beneficial than treating people once they've already developed the disease. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. This brings us to the end of the episode, which is the last in the series. We'll be back soon after a short break to bring you series four, when we'll discuss topics including diabetes technology and NASH, as well as highlights of the upcoming conferences, including ESC and DASD. If you have a question you want answered or a topic you'd like to see discussed in the next series, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email at contact at knowledgeandpractice.eu or send us a message on Twitter or LinkedIn. You can find links to these in the episode notes. Thanks for listening and we look forward to bringing you series four very soon.